Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, good, and bad martinis for you today. Hope you had a great weekend, Jim. I'm guessing you're in a fairly good mood today. Is that about right? Indeed I am, Greg. How are you? <laughs> Doing great. I'm guessing you got some yard work done this weekend that puts you in a really good mood, maybe cleaned nope, out a No, I was really, really wired after yesterday. In fact, <laughs> my suspicion is that if listeners, if you feel like uh, some, I have some good episodes and I have some bad episodes, it's entirely possible that I'll have kind of a subpar to disappointing performance for almost all of today's podcast. But don't worry, I'll make it all up for it in the final two minutes. <laughs> Yeah, the Jets are down 13 with a minute and a half to go and no timeouts and found a way to win. So, Jim, um, you know, beating Cleveland is uh, the step to greatness, I guess. It's a step you have to take. And uh, you're one and one. Bears are one and one. Not the performance I was hoping for last night, but uh, it is what it is. And and on we go. So congratulations uh, getting that one under the belt and uh, all those receipts tucked away in uh, East Rutherford. So uh, well done. Uh, honestly, the the last minute win ruined the best angry fan rant I had stored up. So I'm a little disappointed on that front. But uh, I'll well, find a way to live with it. You might still have a chance to do that at some point yeah. this season. I, I just have to postpone it. I don't really have to cancel it. Just think how do you feel if you're a Browns fan today? Not only do you lose like that, but you lose to Joe Flacco, who of course, you know, for most of his career was with the Ravens, who is the franchise that you detest most in life. So not a good situation if you're a Browns fan. But neither of us are. So on we go. I'll let Hugh Hewitt worry about that. Uh, all right. On, yeah. to, <laughs> on to our good martini now, Jim. And it's nice when there's polling that is so crystal clear that even hopefully Republicans can't screw this up. Hopefully. Uh, but, uh, you know, the issue of education, parental involvement, what's appropriate as part of a curriculum at certain ages. Right now, the numbers are out and it could not be clear. And this is a New York Times poll conducted by Siena College, of course. But uh, nonetheless, it's not some, you know, internal poll by a pro-family organization or something. Uh, but the poll simply asks, do you support... Or oppose allowing public school teachers to provide classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity to children in elementary school. And by elementary school, they mean grades one through five. It can vary from location to location where elementary stops and, and middle school picks up and so forth. But this is grades one through five. And the number is 70% oppose that for elementary school, 27% only uh, supporting it. When you get down into the strongly or somewhat support, it gets even more stark. Strongly oppose, 58%. Somewhat oppose, 12%. Strongly support, 13%. Somewhat support, 14%. Then when you break it down by ideology, Democrats do support it, 53 to 42 Republicans oppose it, Jim, by a glorious 96 to 3. And the independents also opposing it by almost a 3 to 1 margin, 71 to 26. So uh, if you're wondering what to run on, if you're in a tight race, if you're a Republican candidate this year, assuming you earnestly believe this is the right policy to have, uh, numbers like this and issues like this would have to smack you across the face to make it any clearer that this is something you ought to be talking about. 
So two things that jump to mind when I see all these numbers. The first is everybody has a bubble effect. Everyone has some sense of you're surrounded by people who are like-minded. And we very rarely have a sense of exactly what public opinion is and what the things that we do that we think are uh, normal and absolutely mainstream and, and wouldn't bat an eyelash at and the sorts of things that would be seriously controversial and in fact maybe even outrage inducing in other circles. Uh, if you watch, if you ever come across the Twitter or Instagram account, Libs of TikTok, apparently they just look over TikTok and you can find a disturbing number of folks who very often are school teachers who talk about with absolute glee how much they enjoy sharing what I think many people would characterize what should be very personal, you know, uh, details of their sex lives and their relationships and things like that. And, you know, if you're a sex ed teacher, okay, maybe these topics come up in high, you know, in high school or something, but really elementary school, middle school, I think a vast majority of parents would say, this is stuff that is not appropriate at that age. And I do not want my children's teachers teaching them these sorts of things until first of all, if it, not if it violates my values. And the second thing is not until they're an appropriate age for it. And I think, you know, going back to the controversy about the Florida law, kindergarten through third grade, you know, you really shouldn't be doing much more than good touch, bad touch, teaching kids to recognize uh, potential signs of abuse, et cetera. And so this is this, you know, this, this absolute slam dunk, obvious issue. People, parents are very worried about education, but they're worried about reading, writing, and arithmetic. And if you're wondering why American education is so bad, probably it's because we think the three R's includes the words arithmetic. Uh, you know, give kids, you know, give kids the skills they need. You know, a lot of parents want to see their kids not just learning, reading, writing, math, all the basics, history, science. They also want them to be prepared either for the workforce or for college. That's what the focus is, right? It's not going to be, well, here are all of these fascinating, you know, polyamorous, uh, uh, gender fluid, by lifestyles you can try out. You're not really there to be a salesman for other types of lifestyles. This is the duty of parents. Let the parents handle it first and foremost. This is an absolute slam dunk issue, and it is greatly enhanced by the fact that the people who are most ardently believing this have no idea how far outside the mainstream their viewpoints are. So, and that's why they always have to hide behind euphemisms like don't say gay or something like that or bring up the case of, well, what if a teacher wants to have a picture, a, a gay or lesbian teacher wants to have a picture of their spouse on their desk? Fine, fine. No one's saying you can't mention any of that stuff. It's the details and all the descriptions we see there in, you know, libs of TikTok. So anyway, this seems like a, an obvious slam dunk issue for Republicans. Hopefully they maximize their advantage on this and uh, we'll see how it plays out between now and November. No, that's, that's exactly right. And when you watch some of that stuff on libs of TikTok, you know, it's not just them, you know, extolling their own personal lives way beyond what is appropriate for any educational level, but certainly little kids. But they're actually talking about how they're encouraging little kids to question what sex they are. I mean, it's it's not just their own situation. It's uh, trying to direct kids in, into questioning things that until very recently was just normal and assumed. And so I don't know why uh, they feel like they have to go in that direction. But the fact that Libs of TikTok keeps getting banned or suspended because they'd show what these people are talking about uh, shows that some people know uh, that it's not to their political or cultural advantage. But uh, the activists can't see that. And you can see it by what happened with Glenn Youngkin, who simply said parents have to authorize schools to call kids by a different name or a different pro set of pronouns or, or you know accommodate them as a different gender and so forth and then just the apoplectic reaction of the left and so they're so far out of the mainstream on this republicans would be crazy not to talk about this over the next couple months 
All right, let's talk about our great sponsor uh, for today, and that is Quip Electric Toothbrushes. Look, good health starts with good habits, and Quip makes it easy by delivering all the oral care essentials that you need to care for your mouth. The Quip Electric Toothbrush is loved by more than 7 million mouths. In fact, 7 million people, not just the mouth part. (laughs) And they have timed sonic vibrations with 30-second pulses to guide you to a dentist-recommended two-minute clean. It's got a lightweight and sleek design for both adults and kids with no wires and no bulky charger to weigh you down. It has a multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount so there's less clutter in your bathroom. And the reusable handles come in a range of sleek metal hues, including best-selling all black and all pink, as well as bright plastic colors sure to make a pop on your bathroom counter. Quip is loved inside the Columbus house. I can tell you that for sure. If you go to getquip.com slash martini right now, you'll get your first refill for free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash martini. Spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash martini. Quip is the good habits company. All right, Jim, it is a year divisible by two. There are statewide elections in Texas, and that means you can set your watch to the media saying, you know, this could be the year. This could be the year the Democrats uh, really do much better in Texas and take back the governorship and a bunch of other statewide offices. Not looking like that's the case, even with Beto O'Rourke on social media going for runs in his button-down blue dress shirt. But uh, it's not working. (laughs) Dallas Morning News poll just out today. Greg Abbott, 47%. Beto O'Rourke still at 38%. No matter what he does, he's still just hovering right there in the high 30s, right around 40%. And every time Abbott sends a busload of illegals to Chicago or D.C. or something, the media's like, oh, he's over. He's overplayed his hand now. This is where it's really going to come to cost him. No, it's not going to. We'd like to see Greg Abbott up by a lot more. He should be because Beto O'Rourke is about as lightweight of a candidate as you can get. But these numbers simply have not changed, Jim. High single digits. uh, It's been that way for months, and it's probably going to be that way all the way to Election Day. Now, if listeners out there are saying, wait a minute, you know, Abbott's been ahead. Why are you guys making a whole separate martini out of a new one that has him up nine? That's a little higher than usual, but that's not out of it. Fair but I'm kind of really getting sick and tired of the, the the degree to which the coverage of Beto, usually nationally, but also down there in Texas, uh, over Texas Monthly had this, you know, striking profile that started out with maybe a little bit more, I'm going to say a cynical tone. But, but basically the idea of, well, we've been here before. We've seen him uh, run against Ted Cruz four years ago. And really, you know, he didn't, you know, came close, but didn't win. The presidential bid didn't do him much good. Um, what's changed. And by the end of the article, the correspondent is believing again and saying, you know, you know what? This might just be the year. This might, you know what? Gun control has changed it. Oh my goodness. Roe versus Wade is overturned. Things are different in Texas here. You can feel it in the air. You can smell it in the air. And it was just that same level of like, you can see themselves hyping themselves up into it. And the polling doesn't justify it. There is yet to be a poll that has beta or work ahead. There is yet to be a poll that has Beto O'Rourke tied. I guess you could say there was one by Rice University last October, never mind this October, that had Abbott up one. Uh, there's one that had uh, University of Texas did one that had Abbott up two. I'm sorry, Texas Lyceum, pardon me. University of Texas poll had Abbott up by 11. I think what jumps out at me about this one is it has O'Rourke at 38%. Now, is he going to finish at 38 percent? Now, he'll probably do better than that. And, you know, he probably if you look at the numbers now, we're probably looking at something in the neighborhood of uh, 
Uh, 53, 47, maybe, maybe a little bit bigger, maybe a little bit smaller, but you know, a perfectly solid, reliable win by Greg Abbott. But it's just one of those, the, the hype continues, you know, cycle after cycle. And I'm like, when, when, what does he have to do before somebody says, yeah, we've seen this before. Beto O'Rourke's going to do better than the average Democrat, but no, he's not going to win. And it just is like every single cycle, no matter what happens, if you do, oh, he's standing up the press conference. That's a game changer. Oh, you know, everything's always a game changer. And yet the game never changes. So that's why this is a good martini. I love that. I just want that day to come where both national media and Texas Democrats in the Texas media say, OK, better or work was always overhyped and you never really amounted that much. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And, you know, he, his presidential campaign is probably the worst thing he ever uh, agreed to do because. You know, for a while there, when he was in the House, he was doing road trips back to D.C. with Will Hurd. He was trying to present himself as this kind of middle of the road Democrat. And then uh, he did better than expected against Ted Cruz, helped some other people down ballot win. And then he just went hard, hard left on guns and everything else during the presidential campaign when things were not going his way. And now that he's back trying to say he's, you know, more moderate on different things, so statewide in Texas, saying he's more moderate on the border now, people just aren't going to believe him. He's been all over the map. And so he's just mm-hmm. a guy who's proven that he's going to say whatever he thinks he needs to say to get elected. And, uh, you know, as George W. Bush famously said, fool me once, shame on, shame on you. <laughs> you can't fool us again. All right. On to our bad slash crazy martini for today. And. Joe Biden actually did a sit-down interview, which is highly unusual for him these days, but it was with Scott Pelley of uh, 60 Minutes. Uh, I think it was a season premiere of 60 Minutes. The other person they interviewed was the president of Iran, who isn't quite sure if there was a Holocaust, but there might be, so it's maybe worth investigating. So good to see Iran's moderating all over the place. Uh, Jim, <laughs> meanwhile, uh, as for Biden, uh, you know, one of the quotes that we uh, tried out frequently is from his interview with George Stephanopoulos as the Afghanistan debacle was happening as oh, was four or five days ago. Well, Scott Pelley brings up inflation numbers still being high, and Biden uh, apparently thinks we should be far more grateful that they've stabilized at high prices instead of going higher, even though they're still the highest in 40 years. Mr. President, as you know, last Tuesday, the annual inflation rate came in at 8.3%. The stock market nosedived. People are shocked by their grocery bills. What can you do better and faster? Well, first of all, let's put this in perspective. Inflation rate month to month was just uh, 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 just an inch, hardly at all. You're not arguing that 8.3 is good news. No, I'm not saying it's good news, but it was 8.2 or 8.2 before. I mean, it's not, you're, I, mean, I can make it sound like all of a sudden, my God, it went to 8.2%. It's, been, it's the highest inflation rate, Mr. President, in 40 years. I got that, but guess what we are? We're in a position where, for the last several months, it hasn't spiked. It has just barely, it's been basically even. And in the meantime, we created all these jobs, and, and prices have, have gone up, but they've come down for energy. They just stayed at the top of the spike, Jim. They haven't spiked anymore. I mean, talk, talk about your, your, your tone-deaf moment here. Uh, and then on other issues, he just casually mentions that the pandemic's over, which is curious given his explanation for the need for the student debt relief. And then on Taiwan, he's, you know, stumbled on this one before, and he stumbled on it again. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. After our interview, a White House official told us U.S. policy has not changed. Officially, the U.S. will not say 
whether American forces would defend Taiwan. But the commander-in-chief had a view of his own. So unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? Yes. Okay. Now, it, it is worth saying, Jim, that we're not going to tell you what we're going to do is not the greatest and most clear U.S. policy of all time. But Biden keeps doing this. He did this over in Asia. Yeah, we're going to defend Taiwan. And then somebody who I guess knows policy a little bit clearer than he does says, uh, that's not nothing's changed. Same policy. One China dot dot dot. So uh, what do you make of uh, him stumbling all over the place again? Well, for starters, as usual, it would be helpful if a White House staffer could tell President Biden what his views are <laughs> so he doesn't misstate them over and over again. Because it, it's, you know, or basically, he keeps saying, yes, we will totally defend Taiwan. Absolutely, 100%, no doubt about it. And then knows all these things around saying, what the president meant to say was exactly the opposite of that. He did not mean to, to say, yes, we would. Um, you, you just actually described it that, you know, Biden is bragging about after inflation spiking that it stopped spiking. Yeah, that's what happens with the spike. You know, <laughs> otherwise, it's just a continuous incline. And, you know, you're, the fact that you're bragging that uh, it hasn't spiked any further after reaching a spike. Great. Great. Um, listening to Pelly, I think, asks some fair, sober, direct, serious questions. And attempt to pin down Biden and the fact that, lo and behold, another sit-down interview did not go well for Biden. I'm reminded of him telling Lester Holt that he was a wise guy. I'm reminded of him telling George Stephanopoulos, that was four or five days ago, man. Um, I, there was a comment from an unnamed White House advisor a couple of weeks ago that talked about inflation, uh, talked about gas prices, food prices, border and the the other all the problems facing the country, the you know effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and somebody said like, look, this is a lot of bad news. This is a lot of challenging news that the president has to communicate to the country, and there was this offhand comment, but it was like, this is the sorts of things it's not easy to talk about when you're out getting ice cream, and of course we know that every time Joe Biden has ice cream, it turns into major news, and there are lots of photo ops, and we hear about it, and there's like a million and one file photos of Joe Biden, and I kind of had this. There's this persona to Joe Biden that really doesn't lend itself well to either serious questioning from somebody like Pelly or for that matter, like Holt or Stephanopoulos or anybody else. And it also doesn't lend itself well to a situation where the administration, things have gone very badly for the administration. Now, no, nobody's really good at it. Maybe you could say, but Barack Obama was better at it. Bill Clinton was better at it. And whenever you pin down Joe Biden on something, you get some sort of, ah, you're being a wise guy with me. Or, ah, you, I, I know that. Ah, what do you, you know, just just watch me. Ah, you know, there's this, um, I think it's part of his backslapping persona. It's it's almost like, well, you know, you, it's almost like he can joking around. Um, he really seemed to believe that he could call Lester Holt a wise guy for, you know, for, for the sin of quoting Biden right back to him. Right. And the other, the other thing you know, I can think of, you know, it, it's almost in the vein of, if you ain't voting for me, then you ain't black. You know, this presumption of, uh, I don't want to say intimacy, presumption of casualness, this presumption of, you know, Joe Biden is already always assumed that like, oh, you know where he's coming from. And now ah, you're being ridiculous here. Ah, you're being silly. You know, uh, when in fact, you know, Scott Pelley is being perfectly reasonable in his inquiries. And when, you know, Joe Biden says, ah, you know, it was it was it was pretty good from month to month or not so bad from month to month. Yeah. After reaching the worst in 40 years, that's not really good news, Mr. President. And he's trying to communicate this and Biden's like, hi, you know, 
um, he's not, you know, many of us suspect he's not all there and that this is the level of discourse he's capable of. He's not going to be able to give you a lengthy, detailed rebuttal full of, you know, references to, to specific figures and uh, a complex but, you know, detailed and compelling macroeconomic argument. Is he basically, ah, it's not that bad. Well, it all depends on where you are, Mr. President. And I, you know, when you spend every weekend in a beach house at Delaware, maybe it doesn't seem so bad. But you know what? For a whole bunch of people who are out living in the country, it does seem pretty bad. So uh, more of the same from Biden. Not exactly shocking. I do look at this and say, really? You're going to put him out on the campaign trail uh, a whole lot from coast to coast in the midterm elections? Okay. Good luck with that, Democrats. Yeah. Or they'll send him across country and he'll read off the teleprompter. But you're not going to see him doing sit-down interviews with local press talking about how great things are in Ohio or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or stuff like that. No, not a chance. Meanwhile, the Lester Holt wise guy thing was about it being transitory. And Biden now is bragging that it's still at the top of the spike instead of going on to a different spike. And so his definition of transitory. And that was like six months ago. Oh, at least. More yeah. than five or five days ago, man. Yeah, I mean, we're getting to the about a year now after the this inflation really became a problem here. But yeah, Biden's got this assumption that everyone should just take his word for everything. And the second he gets challenged, he gets really nasty. So this whole nice guy uh, facade that he likes to put out there evaporates the second that happens. I mean, and it's not just a recent thing. It's not some old man ornery thing. If you go back to the plagiarism scandal in 1988 and he held that disaster of a press conference, some guy asked a, you know, a challenging question. He says, well, I bet my test scores were better than yours. You know, it's completely yeah. unrelated to the, <laughs> to the question at hand. But he just can't take a tough question. And he never has been able to. There is this, yeah, like people should tell you you shouldn't play armchair psychologist or things like that. But the way and, and obviously nobody really enjoys being criticized, but the way Biden responds to criticism, I'll bet I have a higher IQ than you do, you know, and, and instantly, you know, there's there's I'm going to say, you know, look, either it's thin skinned, you can call it prickly. There's this defensiveness. You know, he goes, oh, I was always middle class Joe and I wasn't wealthy as all you know, this idea that he was insecure compared to all of his colleagues in the Senate. And there was always this this fear that he wasn't being taken seriously, that he was kind of seen as this oddball joke. And look, Joe Biden did have this reputation. I mean, it was this infamous story of uh, Barack Obama saying, uh, listening to Biden drone on at some meeting and passing a note to an aide that said, shoot me now. By the way, no one shoot Barack Obama. Um, he was joking, but they, that sense of like they kind of found him this insufferable blowhard, and you know, they, you know, there's a book coming out about the relationship between Obama and Biden, and it was not the happy buddy buddy relationship that it was often painted as. There was often this mutual sense that each one felt like the other one wasn't really respecting the other and all that stuff. So, like, I think you see this this bit of Biden's character come through in moments like this, and we'll see how it affects the midterms, if you know, if at all. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think you made a good point. We've talked about this a while back, and I think you made a good point. Other than his initial election to the Senate, he didn't really have any tough campaigns uh, after that. And so, you know, when you don't have tough campaigns you get a little soft and you don't expect tough questions and when they do pop up like it happened in 88 and then you know when he ran for president a couple of times before uh joining mm. forces with obama you know then all of a sudden you know your your muscle memory isn't that great anymore so a lot of different factors yeah, because, yeah the moment he encountered real coverage outside of delaware he, he was roadkill yes exactly exactly he did nothing until he was uh obama's running mate on a national level Anyway, Jim, keep basking in your victory. Uh, 
And the fact that I think, oh no, the Dolphins, I guess, uh, are 2 0. So not first place in the division. But Hope Springs Eternal, uh, who do you have next week? Uh, the former Super Bowl runner up, Cincinnati Bengals, which ordinarily would look very uh, intimidating. But they are 0 and 2. Uh, close loss to Pittsburgh, close loss to Dallas. So. Who knows? I, I guess that's why they play the games, Greg. Already looking forward to next weekend with the football, Jim, but also looking forward to tomorrow and our next batch of topics. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well, please. Thank you also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please, please keep those coming. They are a huge help to us. Also, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Don't forget about Jim's brand new novel, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Have a great Monday, and please join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Alfredo Ortiz of Job Creators Network joins me to explain how Biden policies are devastating small businesses and American families. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Ortiz will also explain the messaging that will lead to big Republican wins this year. I'll also discuss Vice President Harris lying about the border and what the FBI is really doing in its investigation of President Trump. Join me, follow the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.